Good morning. <laughs> we had a great first meeting uh, for our new small groups on Wednesday night. Uh, I wanted to say to you that if you are unable to make those small groups on Wednesdays, but you still want to follow along, we do have books that we can give you. Uh, like uh, Shane said, uh, the process is I will preach on what you're going to be learning about in the book uh, on Sunday, and then Wednesdays you'll go over it in, in greater detail. And I will attempt as much as possible to try and not make it verbatim what you study on Wednesday, so it's not a, a rehash, but maybe a, a deeper uh, dive. So that's Wednesday nights at 6.30 over in the Anderson building there. Uh, I just did all that talking there. Uh, last week we were, uh, we were going to look, uh, or this week we're going to look at the continuation of Paul's greeting to the Romans. Right? Last week we looked at the first uh, seven verses of chapter one. And if you remember, those, those verses broke down into four sections. The servant, the scripture, the son, and the saints. This week, Paul is going to continue uh, his letter with uh, the reasoning for his writing. And he will give us a theme verse for the entire book. In fact, this, this verse right here, last week I said if you, if you knew Romans 1 through 7, you knew Romans in a nutshell. But if you know this verse, you know the nut inside of that nutshell. right? This, this is the theme for everything in Romans points back to this verse, and that's going to be verse 17. We'll get to that. But uh, first we're going to read our passage. And uh, I wanted to, today I'm going to go back and, uh, first I'm going to find the page. Uh, we're going to go back and we're going to read from verse 1, because we know that Romans is a letter, right? And how many of you receive a letter, or probably more likely an email, and you read the first two lines and then you close it and you walk away for a week, and then you come back and you read the next two lines and you close it and you walk away for a week? It, it, we don't do that, right? So this was a letter. So what I want to do is I'm going to go all the way back to verse 1, and we're going to read uh, all the way through where we're going today so we can kind of get a feel of the flow to help us understand the context of what Paul is saying there. So uh, we're going to go to Romans 1. We're going to start in verse 1. Paul, a bondservant of Christ Jesus, called as an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in, in the Holy Scriptures. Concerning his son, who was born of a descendant of David according to the flesh, who was declared the son of God with power by the resurrection from the dead, according to the spirit of holiness, Jesus Christ, our Lord, through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith among all the Gentiles for his name's sake, among whom you also are called of Jesus Christ. To all who are beloved of God in Rome, called as saints, Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for you, you all, because your faith is being proclaimed throughout the whole world. For God, whom I serve in my spirit in the preaching of the gospel of his Son, is my witness as to how unceasingly I make mention of you, always in my prayers making requests. If perhaps now, at last by the will of God, I may succeed in coming to you. For I long to see you so that I may impart some spiritual gift to you that you may be established. That is, that I may be encouraged together with you while among you, each of us by the other's faith, both yours and mine. I do not want you to be unaware, brethren, that I have often planned to come to you and have been prevented so far, so that I may obtain some fruit among you also, even as among the rest of the Gentiles. I am under obligation both to the Greeks and to the barbarians, both to the wise and to the foolish. So for my part, I am eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome, for I am not ashamed of the gospel. 
For it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. To the Jew first, and also to the Greek. And here it is, the theme verse. For in, for in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, but the righteous man shall live by faith. May God add his blessing of understanding to the reading of his word. Let's pray. Lord, we pray a simple prayer today. What we have not, give us. What we know not, teach us. And we will give you all the glory for it. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. As we wrap up uh, Paul's introduction to the Romans today, a verse comes to mind. Paul told the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 11.1, 1, Be imitators of me, just as I am an imitator of Christ. So today, I wanted to focus on the servant. More specifically, how did he serve? We remember from his message, um, from verses 1 through 7, and, and of course the breakdown for those verses I mentioned before, the servant, the scripture, the son, and the saints. And remember how Paul described himself as a servant in verse 1. In Romans 1.1, 1, 1, Paul, a bond servant of Jesus Christ. A bond servant, you can think about this like this. Uh, we, we're kind of bond servants to any credit cards we have, right? We, we, uh, we have a debt to pay off. And in those times, the way they would, if they had a debt, they would go to that person, they would become their bond servant. And for a specified period of time, they would work to pay off their debt, and then they would be free. But during that time, they were completely under the will of the master. They were completely under his will. They had no will. They had no say. It was all the bosses say. So Paul describes himself as a bondservant to Christ Jesus, called as an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God. So keeping that description of the servant in mind, and also keeping uh, the 1 Corinthians verse in mind, how do we imitate Paul, according to verses 8 through 17? I broke this passage down into five areas of service that that Paul was involved in, and today we're going to look at each one of these areas and what that looks like for us. If you remember, we are called by God, just as Paul was called by God, to be servants, proclaiming the truth of the Scripture, to bring about faith in the Son, to bring more saints into the heavenly kingdom. So as Paul served in our passage, so should we, and I came up with, with five different ways to serve here. First, thankful service. He was thankful for those he served. Second, prayerful service. Paul prayed continuously for those he served with. Third, mutual service. Paul wanted to both serve the Roman church, but he was also looking forward to serving with them and the encouragement that that would bring. The fourth service is intentional service. Note that, that God didn't, or excuse me, Paul didn't disregard the sovereignty of God in his serving, but he did make prayerful plans and committed their completion to the Lord. And finally, the fifth point, gospel service. Paul's primary service was to the gospel. Nothing was more important than the gospel. Okay? Thankful service, prayerful service, mutual service, intentional service, gospel service. So let's take a look at that uh, thankful service. Verse 8, first I thank my God, through Jesus Christ, for you all, because your faith is being proclaimed throughout all, throughout the whole world. Paul, Paul's thankfulness runs deep throughout the, the New Testament. If you, if you go to 1 Corinthians 1, verse 4, I thank my God always concerning you for the grace of God which was given to you in Jesus Christ. 
Ephesians 1, 15 through 16. For this reason, I too, having heard of the faith in the Lord Jesus, which exists among you and your love for all the saints, do not cease giving thanks for you while making mention of you in my prayers. Philippians 1, 3. I thank my God in all my remembrance of you. 1 Thessalonians 1, 2. We give thanks to God always for all of you, making mention of you in our prayers. Paul understood that as a servant of Christ, thankfulness for those that Christ gives you to serve is a must. And not just to be thankful for those uh, that he served one time. It's not like, oh, thanks for Thomas. And then he, he walks off and doesn't think about Thomas anymore, right? This, this uh, when you study the, the, the language this was written in, the Greek uh, verb here is a present active verb, right? It sounds complicated, but it's really not. Present means he's thankful right now. Active means he is thankful continuously until the day he dies. He is thankful for them continuously. But why? Why is Paul thankful for a group of people that he'd never met in a city that he'd never been in, whose faith he'd only heard of? To answer that, we go back to the Galatians passage I mentioned earlier. Um, I think I did this in the first service, too. That's Ephesians that we want to go back to, not Galatians. Uh, Ephesians 1, 15 through 16. For this reason, I too, having heard of the faith in the Lord Jesus, which exists among you, and your love for all the saints, do not cease giving thanks for you. Why does he thank? For the, love, the faith in the Lord Jesus, which exists among you, and your love for all the saints. You see, Paul understood, and we should too, about serving others, that, that the faith he was hearing about meant souls were being saved. Saints were being added to the kingdom, and the gospel was spreading. As we serve, we should be thankful for those that God has given us to serve. But there will be times we can run into difficult people to be thankful for. I'm not talking about anybody here. I'm most, mostly the first service. But in the first service, I said the second service. Thanks. But we will run into people that challenge us. Sometimes they even make our, our ministry more difficult. And when we do run into these folks, we need to remember Paul's example here. Because, and again, I'm not talking about anybody here, but is it possible that we can be difficult to serve God? I think back to Jesus saying, remove the log from your own eye before you try to remove the splinter from your brothers. The greatest antidote to disunity in the church is gratefulness. How can I have a problem with someone that I am thanking God for. This is what Paul had in mind when he wrote to the Colossians. In Colossians chapter 3, starting at verse 12. So as those who have been chosen by God, holy and beloved, put on a heart of compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience, bearing with one another, forgiving each other. Whoever has a complaint against anyone, against who? Anyone, just as the Lord forgave you. Ooh, that brings a little thing in there. Just as the Lord forgave you, so also should you. Beyond all these things, put on love, which is the perfect bond of unity. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful. Okay, so we're to be thankful for those we serve. 
And if you were listening to the scriptures I read to you earlier, you might have picked up on point two. We are to serve prayerfully. Verse nine, for God whom I serve in my spirit in the preaching of his gospel of his son is my witness as to how unceasingly I make mention of you. Always in my prayers making requests. If perhaps now at last by the will of God I may succeed in coming to you. I won't read, uh, reread all of those verses that I read earlier to you again. But if you noticed while I was reading them before, each line of thankfulness was followed by an assertion that he was thankful for the people he served in prayer. He was thanking God in prayer for them, unceasingly. I'm so thankful for the prayers that I hear about my family and I in our various Bible studies and small groups, our prayer meeting at 6 o'clock on, on Sunday nights. We covet those prayers. We need those prayers. But you should also know that you are constantly being prayed for as well. One of the things I like to do as I prepare my sermon uh, is to pray for this church and to pray for each one of you. And the way I do it is I, I sit in my office and, and I lean back and I close my eyes. So if you walk past my office and see me do that, I'm not sleeping, I promise. Right? I'm praying. And, and I visualize this. And I start and I go right along each row and I remember who's sitting in each row. So when you guys switch places on me, it really messes me up, but that's okay. That's okay. I want you to switch places. Get to know other people. But I go through, and if you've made uh, concerns known to me, I pray for those concerns. And if you haven't, then I pray for your sanctification. I pray that God is working in your life, that you are drawing nearer to Christ every day. And I would encourage all of you to do something like this. If you're involved in a ministry, pray for those who serve. If you are not being blessed by being involved in a ministry right now, pray for that blessing and get involved in one. And then pray for those you serve. Like Paul told the Ephesians in Ephesians 6, starting in verse 18, with all prayer and petition, pray at all times in the Spirit. And with this in view, this is what we're praying for now, at all times in the Spirit, be on the alert with all perseverance and petition for all the saints. Not the ones that we like. Not the ones that we hang out with. All saints. Timothy was told in 1 Timothy 2, starting in verse 1, Of all then I urge that entreaties and prayers, petitions, and thanksgivings be made on behalf of all men. You noticing a common word there? All. For kings and all who are in authority. Notice he doesn't say, for kings that are doing a good job, for kings that are running their country well, for kings that are running their states or their counties or their cities well. He says, for kings and all who are in authority, so that we may lead a tranquil and quiet life in all godliness and dignity. This is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior. Right there. As soon as you read that, you should be like, I want to do that. That's what I want to do, because it is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior, who desires that all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. Our prayers for each other matter. They matter for our perseverance. And when we pray, it is good and acceptable in the sight of our Lord. Which leads to our third point, as our, as our prayers should be for each other, our service is a mutual one as well. Verse 11, for I long to see you so that I may impart some spiritual gift to you that you may be established. That is, that I may be encouraged together with you while among you, 
each of us by the other's faith, both yours and mine. I will tell you, in the time that I've been the pastor here at Brentwood Bible Fellowship, I have a deeper understanding of these verses. There's something that is so encouraging about seeing a fellow believer's faith in Christ grow. Amen. Don't get me wrong. I appreciate all the times when you know we're saying goodbye on, on Sunday mornings and you know, somebody walks by and says, hey, that's a great sermon. That's nice. I appreciate that. But the times where people have said to me, you know, I was thinking about what you said last Sunday. So I dug out my Bible and I did some reading. Or this thing you talked about last week challenged me, so I've begun to pray more. Or God has given victory to me over this area in my life. Those, those are the most encouraging times. To watch my brothers and sisters in Christ begin to be sanctified, continue to be strengthened. It deepens our awareness of his word, and it's a reward all in and of itself. And hopefully this is what you're getting in your small groups and your Bible studies throughout the week. When you meet with that group, or some of you groups, share with one another what God is doing with your faith. And in doing so, you will be an encouragement. And do so intentionally. That is to say, find things to share and celebrate with your group when you meet. And you will find this has an amazing effect on those around you. Paul moves forward, and so should we, to our fourth point, serving intentionally. Verse 13, he says, I do not want you to be unaware, brother, that often I have planned to come to you and have been prevented so far, so that I may obtain some fruit among you also. He's looking for converts there. He's looking to save souls. Even as among the rest of the Gentiles, I am under obligation to both the Greeks and to the barbarians. He wasn't insulting them there. They were actually called barbarians, so he wasn't calling them savages or anything like that. Both to the wise and to the foolish. So for my part, I am eager to preach the gospel. There's a picture here, right? He says, I want to obtain some fruit among you. I, I want to bring people to Christ, but also I'm eager to preach the gospel. He wants to strengthen the saints that are already established. 1 Corinthians 9.16, Paul says, Woe to me if I don't preach. Isaiah says, It burns in my bones. I want to preach. I want to share this gospel. One of the dangers of accepting the sovereignty of God, of acknowledging that God knows every eventuality, every possibility, everything that will be, everything that you will do, is that some may say, well, God already has everything planned out. So why should we plan anything with our ministries? We just throw stuff up against the wall. Whatever sticks, that's what God wanted, right? But Paul didn't see it that way. He says, often I have planned to come to see you, but he had thus far been prevented. Paul knew, and we should know, that as a good steward to the gospel, it will take prayerful planning. And that even when we plan it, we need to be sensitive to what God is doing and understand that God's timing is perfect. Amen. I can't tell you how many times I've sat there in my office, man, we should get this going. Or we should get this going. Or we should get this going. And I have to stop myself and I have to say, what has God given us right now? What is God asking us to do right now? 
And I'm still going to plan for those ministries. Those, those are still being planned for. But I will trust in the sovereignty of God that if he wants that ministry to take off, somebody's going to walk through that door Sunday morning and say, hey, I'm interested in, in starting a ministry like this. Amen. Amen. We've been so blessed with this church. So blessed. We had we had a ministry team move to Texas during COVID. Mike and his team stepped up. We had a, a Sunday school a group that went uh, and started a home church. We have Sunday school teachers that have stepped up. We had a youth pastor that took a, a church in Illinois. Brandon and Angela stepped up. God will bring us exactly who he wants, exactly when he wants. And we need to have our plan in place and ready to rock. Speaking of plans, Paul is about to move his plan for Romans forward. He has greeted the Roman church. He's told them he was thankful for them and that he prayed for them, that he looked forward to the encouragement he would receive in serving with them. And he even told them about his failed plans to come visit them and preach the gospel to them. But now Paul will truly expose what this letter is all about. In verse 16, he's now going to start pivoting towards that main theme verse that we talked about. Verse 16, he says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. In verse 15, Paul tells the Romans he's eager to preach. He wants to bring this gospel. He wants to strengthen the believers and bear fruit. In verse 16, he tells them why, because he is not ashamed of the gospel. Not ashamed is a negative way. And when I say negative, I don't mean bad. I mean negative like when you remember when you did math, right? A negative six. It's not a bad six. It's just negative. It, it, it's, it's a negative way of saying, I am proud of the gospel. I am not ashamed. Therefore, I am proud of this gospel because it is the power of God for salvation. Amen. You see, Paul understood that if all that happened when he preached was that he got up, flapped his gums, strung a couple words together, made people laugh, nothing would happen. It's the same thing that I know when I get up here every Sunday morning. But when Paul preached the gospel, or when I preached the gospel, or when you preach the gospel to your neighbors or in your ministries, there's power behind it. God's power. Power that can change the darkest, most defeated soul into a bright shining child of God. That power is the Holy Spirit. The one that transforms our, our teeny and, and cracked offerings of worship and turns them into glory to God. Amen. It is when we attempt to usurp this power or attempt to lean on our own understanding that we actually damage the testament of the gospel. When we seek to dumb down the implications of the gospel or tame the gospel. When we remove God's wrath and condemnation towards sinners and replace it with a fluffy God loves everybody theology. We remove the teeth from the gospel. This is what we see in a lot of churches today. So afraid to offend. So worried about being polite. I like to listen to a, another pastor by the name of Bodhi Bauckham. He likes to call it the 11th commandment. 
thou shalt be nice. It's when we do that, when, when we remove sin, when we remove God's wrath from the message of the gospel, that we politely take out and grab the hand of that sinner. We smile lovingly into their eyes and we walk them through the gates of hell. There is power in the gospel and it needs no defense from us. Amen. It is the Lion of Judah and it needs no protection. I think Spurgeon said it best in his sermon entitled, The Lover of God's Law Filled with Peace. He says, The Word of God can take care of itself, and we'll do so if we preach it, and cease defending it. See you that lion. They have caged him for his preservation. Shut him up behind iron bars to secure him from his foes. See how a band of armed men have gathered together to protect the lion. What a clatter they make with their swords and spears. These mighty men are intent upon defending a lion. Oh, fools, and slow of heart, open that door. Let the Lord of the forest come forth free. Who will dare encounter him? What does he want with your guardian care? Let the pure gospel go forth in all its lion-like majesty, and it will soon clear its own way and ease itself of adversaries. Amen. And what is this gospel? What is this lion? Look at verse 17. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, but the righteous man shall live by faith. Here is the nut within the nutshell. This is the theme of the whole book of Romans. Last week I told you the first seven verses of Romans were the nutshell of Romans, right? If you just learned the first seven verses, you'd have a, a, an idea of what Romans is about. But if you have a pencil or a pen and you don't mind writing in your Bible, you should underline this verse. Because every other verse in the book of Romans is built from this one. This is the verse that both hung the great reformer Martin Luther up and eventually set him free. Martin Luther was a Catholic monk and he'd gone to great lengths to procure his salvation through works. He was known to have taken every sin so seriously that, that he would often spend three or four hours in that little confessional booth that the Catholics have, right? Where they confess to another priest. We don't do that. We confess to Jesus Christ. Amen. But he would spend three or four hours in there recounting every little thing that he thought was a sin in his life with the hopes of grasping salvation. It got so bad that the monk in charge of listening to these confessions finally kicked Luther out and told him not to come back unless he had a real sin to confess. Martin Luther, he, 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 there was a, a set of stairs in Rome and, and it was said that you were supposed to walk up these stairs and, and pray as you went up these stairs. He didn't walk up the stairs. He pulled his, his pants up and crawled up those stairs on his knees until they bled. Working. Striving. Seeking salvation in his own means. Martin Luther one day was reading this very passage that we are in today. In fact, it said that he hated this passage. He hated it because he read it and it said the, the righteousness of God. And he interpreted that as, as God is righteous looking down on us and saying, why can't you be like me? And he hated God for it. 
He says, he opens up the, the verse there and he says, here in it, in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith as it is written, the just shall live by faith. A verse taken from the book of Habakkuk in the Old Testament. Cited three times in the New Testament. And Luther looked at this verse and he said, what does this mean that there's this righteousness that is by faith and from faith to faith? What does it mean that the righteous shall live by faith? And gradually the lights came on for Luther. And he began to understand that what Paul was speaking of here was a righteousness that God in his grace was making available to those who would receive it passively. Amen. Not those who would achieve it actively. Not through works, but by faith. If there was ever a case to be made for people studying the original languages of the Bible, here's one. In seminary, we're studying... Uh, I finished up Greek and now I'm in Hebrew and it's it's not easy. I will tell you, it's not easy. But it's worth it. And, the, and Martin Luther, he, he read the Bible in Latin. And so he's reading in Latin and the, and the Latin word for justification that was used at this time in the church history, uh, it, it's the word that we get, the English word justification. The Latin word justificare. And it came from the Roman judicial system. The term Justificare is made up of the word justice, which is justice or righteousness, and the verb, uh, the infinitive, facare, which means to make. And so the Latin fathers understood the doctrine of justification is what happens when God, through the, the sacraments of the church or elsewhere, make unrighteous people righteous. But Luther looked at the Greek. The Greek word that's used in the New Testament, dikaios or dikaisume, uh, which didn't mean to make righteous. Dikaisume uh, is, is to count, to count, but rather to regard as righteous, to count as righteous, to declare as righteous. And this was a moment of awakening for Luther. He said, you mean here Paul is not talking about the righteousness by which God himself is righteous, but a righteousness which God gives freely by his grace to people who don't have a righteousness of their own. And so Luther said, whoa, you mean the righteousness by which I will be saved is not mine? It's what's called a, a justia alienum, an alien righteousness, a righteousness that belongs properly to someone else. It's a righteousness that is extra nos, meaning outside of us, namely righteousness of Christ. Amen. And Luther said, when I discovered that, I was born again of the Holy Ghost and the doors of paradise swung open and I walked through. Amen. Paul's gospel, our gospel, is that Jesus Christ was 100% man, 100% God. He lived a sinless life. He was murdered for sin that he did not commit and was raised again and is now seated at the right hand of God the Father interceding for the believer. You know that Satan, the accuser, is constantly saying, look at what Lance did! Look at what he did! He's not your child! And Jesus leans over and says, I covered that. And Satan says, but what about this? Look at this! He just yelled at his wife. And Jesus said, I covered that. He just yelled at the dog. 
grace. You can't earn it. There aren't enough old ladies to help across the street and cats to save out of trees to earn your way to heaven. It is by faith in Christ and faith alone that we are justified in God's eyes, washed clean and clothed in the righteousness of someone else, an alien righteousness, a righteousness outside of us, that is, the righteousness of Jesus Christ. But if on that last day, the day of judgment happens, and one is found to not have placed their faith in the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, it will be too late. Like the parable that Jesus told in Matthew 25, the ten virgins awaiting for their bridegroom, and they all had lamps uh, that they needed to see their way in, and five of them were wise and five of them were foolish, and the wise ones brought extra oil, and the foolish ones only brought the, the lamp. And the bridegroom delayed a little bit, and around midnight there was a cry that went out, the bridegroom's here! And the wise, the wise uh, virgins, they, they trimmed up their lamp and they poured more oil in it and they went to go meet the bridegroom. And the, but the, the foolish ones said, we don't have any oil for our lamp. And they said to the wise ones, give us some of that oil. And they said, no, we can't do that. And then we wouldn't have any oil. Go out into the marketplace and find your own oil. And so they did. The foolish ones went out to look for it. And when they got it, they came back and they found the door shut. Matthew 25, 11. Jesus says, later the other virgins also came, saying, Lord, Lord, open up for us. But he answered, truly I say to you, I do not know you. Be on the alert then, for you do not know the day or the hour. Jesus later in Matthew 25 spoke very in very plain terms about what would happen to those who did not place their faith in him. In verse 31 of chapter 25, he says, But when the Son of Man comes in his glory, and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. All the nations will be gathered before him, and he will separate them one from another, as the shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And he will put the sheep on his right and the goats on his left. And there's some dialogue there between uh, Jesus and the, the goats and the sheep. And then later in verse 45, speaking to the goats, the unbelievers, Jesus will say, then he will answer them, truly I say to you, to the extent that you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me, these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. That's what the song was about. When we were saved, we were saved to heaven, yes. We were saved to God, yes. But we were saved from wrath. Thessalonians tells us that believers are not destined for wrath, but for glory. Amen. And not only were we saved from that glory, but Jesus paid for that glory. We're saved, we're saved from the wrath. Excuse me, we're saved from the wrath, and Jesus paid for the wrath. When he hung on that cross and the sky went dark for three hours, what was he doing? He was taking every sin that I ever committed, every sin that you ever committed, every sin that every believer in the world ever committed, and he was taking that on himself. And the wrath of God and eternal punishment for each one of us was poured out on him Amen. on that cross. Amen. That is what we are saved from. Thank you, Jesus. This is the glory of the gospel. Faith and faith alone will save you from eternal punishment. 
such a, a simple and yet extravagant gift. And it is available to all who would believe. If you find yourself here today and you realize that you haven't placed your faith in that gospel, in Jesus Christ, the one who freely offers salvation and escape from eternal punishment, and you want to know more about this Jesus, we're going to sing a final song, and I'll stand up here. I'll wait. If you want to come down and talk to me, or even if you want to grab me after the service, I'm just a little uncomfortable to walk forward for all these people. Come talk to me. I would love to share this powerful line of a gospel with you. For the rest of us, I hope that Paul has shed some light on service in the kingdom of God. How we are to serve thankfully. We are to serve prayerfully. We are to serve mutually. We are to serve intentionally. And above all, we are to serve the full, unedited gospel with those around us. Next week, we will look with Paul at what happens when a society or an individual even rejects that gospel, when they turn their back on that gospel and begin to worship the created and not the creator. It isn't pretty. But I promise you it is very relevant to the days that we are living in. Will you please pray with me? Lord, what do we say? How could we ever thank you for what you did for us? An eternal punishment. A punishment that we could never pay. A punishment that would last literally forever. You took that for each one of us. You made your enemy your child. And you saved us. And words and deeds cannot ever repay that. So Lord, we pray as we serve that we don't serve to work for our salvation. We serve as an appreciation for what you've done for us. We serve because you've asked us to. And because we love you. Lord, we thank you for this message today. Thank you for all that could be here. I pray for those that couldn't be here. Pray that you'd be with them, that you'd strengthen them. Thinking specifically of some of our seniors that are stuck at home trying to get better. Be with them, Lord. Encourage them. Remind them that they are not alone. That you are with them at all times. And we will give you all the glory and all the honor. In Jesus Christ's name we pray. Amen.